Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today I get to talk to an author you've heard me discuss numerous times on the podcast, Simone St. James. She's an icon for me, so it was really special to be able to discuss her collective works with her. We talk about everything from writing sex to building dread, and I know I certainly learned a lot. You can order any of her books using my bookshop.org link to support the show as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following she wore black on Twitter and Instagram and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Now on to the show. All right, Simone St. James, this is the moment I have been waiting for. (laughs) I'm so glad I could make you happy. (laughs) Yes, yes. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Well, all of my listeners will know that you are an auto buy for me. (laughs) (laughs) They uh, know that I've read all your work and I talk about it constantly on the show. Your most recent book came out earlier this year, but I would actually like to discuss your oeuvre if you will. The first several books you published were historicals that took place between the two world wars and your newer books are contemporaries with dual timelines. Yet all of these stories very clearly have your voice. Like you've created your own brand of Gothic. And Mm. I'm just curious about how you've is that natural? Is that something that you've, you've been writing forever? I feel like this is something that happens when you've been honing your craft for a very long time. Um, yeah, I mean, I did write for, I did write uh, and submit for six years before The Haunting of Maddie Claire. I got an agent and then a publishing deal for that. I actually did start out thinking I want, I wanted to be a romance writer. Those were the first two full manuscripts I wrote were historical romances. I wanted to be Elizabeth Hoyt. So I wanted to be, <gasps> Oh, we all want to be Elizabeth Hoyt. <laughs> well, when I started, when I started thinking I wanted to write for publication, she like, she burst onto the scene. There was a period where she just burst onto the scene and it was like, you just had to read her because she was the big talent that came out and I wanted to be her. And I was like, I could, I wanted to do that. And so I wrote two historical romance manuscripts that I sent to agents and got completely rejected for which is was fine and then and I I just couldn't I just you know my work wasn't there yet and then I came up with the idea for The Haunting of Maddie Claire and I and you know that that book as you know I mean it's not really one thing or another thing it's a romance it's a gothic it's a this it's a that it's historical it's a this but it's what you know historical romance at that time was almost all either Regency or Victorian and it wasn't one of those. And I was like, this, this story is unsellable in my mind because I had been in the romance world and I was like, this is unsellable. No one's ever going to want to read this, but I wanted to know the, I had the idea for it. I wanted to know the end of the story. So I sat down and wrote it and I thought no one, no one is going to want to read this, but this is going to be a book. I'm going to print it out. I'm going to put it in a binder. I'm going to put it on my shelf. This is my book. I wrote it. And I sent it out to, I think 30 agents and, um, I got like 29 rejections and one agent was like, I I love this and I think I can sell it. And then a couple months later she sold it. So it was just sort of a, it was just one of those things where, I mean, like I wrote it for myself, I wrote that book for myself, but that wasn't what I was intending to do. (laughs) 
know. I've heard like Sarah McLean talking about like writing for yourself before you do anything else, because that's really how you put everything into your work. I've, I've Hester Fox talked about that too on my show. Like the well, first I wrote book, the book she wrote. I wanted to read. I couldn't find that book. I wanted a book that was scary, but not horror. It doesn't end horribly. I'm sorry to spoil it, but if you read any of my books, I don't end with everybody dying in horrible ways. Things sort of come out and I, it, things, the characters have changed, but things come out sort of moving forward. And I wanted it. Um, I wanted a mix of the spookiness with romance and yes. I didn't want, I wanted the romance. I mean, especially that first book, the romance is actually pretty explicit. That's what I wanted. I was like, no one writes this, like no one writes this. And so I, it was literally the book I wanted to read and couldn't find. And so I was like, well, I, I just, and I came up with the idea and I was like, well, I want, this is my book I want to read. So I guess if I, I have to write it myself, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of how I do all my books ever since. <laughs> well, Ma Maddie Claire is the first one I read from you. I yeah. had um, been looking for a ghost story that was sexy yeah. Just like what you were saying, you were looking, yeah. you were, you wrote the book you wanted to read and that's what I wanted to read. And thank you very much for writing it. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> um, and it's, it's often the book I talk about because horror is in the last year in particular, this has been going on with romance for a while where they've been exploring more fear combined with romance where there's been like monster romance a couple of years ago, kind of blew up as something that was big and, and they were exploring kind of fear and, and sex and love and all of those things about ourselves through kind of combining those. But horror is, become very interested in it in the last even at StokerCon, they had a horror romance panel mm. so mm. when people because i talk about romance as much as i talk about the gothic because you know gothic has a lot of a huge history with romance it does. Uh, yeah i uh i love that you were talking about maddie claire having sex on the page because <laughs> that is one of the things that i say i was you know the, people in horror are wanting to explore romance a little bit but they want to dip their toe in a way that's also familiar so right. i recommend this book i was on the talking scared podcast talking about gothic romance and he said what's the one book that you would recommend to my listeners and that was it and i've had people people. And I think you might've seen on Twitter yesterday, somebody also saying like, I saw that you mentioned that and I picked it up and it was great. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that you also mentioned Elizabeth Hoyt. Oh my gosh, what a powerhouse she is. I recommended her to Josh Mallerman who wanted to explore romance too. He loves Bridgerton and mm -hmm. <laughs> Outlander. Can't go but, wrong. But what do you think it is about this combination of things that has suddenly sparked interest in both genres wanting to explore each other. What do you think that is? Um, I don't know everything about it. I will say that one of the forces that is happening now that wasn't happening, I wrote Maddie Claire in 2009. Um, I sold it in 2010 and it released in 2012. So when I wrote that book, it's 2009. So one of the things that is happening now that is not happening then is, is self-publishing. And I think that when you could look at some of the stuff you're talking about monster romance and whatnot. And I mean, the self-publishing authors were doing that first, you know, yes. um, and the self-published authors tend to prove that, um, uh, well, with self-publishing, you can, if you have a smaller niche audience, you can still make a living. And in traditional publishing, you really need to be, in order to be, you have to be making a lot of money because there's an entire company that needs to pay a bunch of wages and 
and that's totally fair. But so self-publishing gets to explore with lower overhead, they get to explore where these various little niches can be found. And, and when they get some traction, that's when the bigger publishers can basically, that's when they have the luxury of taking notice. So um, I think that's one of the things that is driving a lot of different ideas that are coming into the creative marketplace is, is just experimenting that's happening in the self-publishing world. Um, and some of it is, you know, and it's, everyone likes to dump on self-publishing, but some of it is good and some of it is not good, but some of it is just something like, I have never read a book like this before. And this happens to be the book that I think is fantastic for whatever reason. And, and someone gets to kind of experiment with that. And I think that that's driving some of what's going on, especially in the romance world. I don't know how much horror has dipped into self-publishing but romance went into it like they just dove in head first yeah yeah it's happening in both and I think it's interesting when you see like success like Mimi Matthews didn't really want to do big house publishing for a while she liked the control and did very very well and now Berkeley's publishing her um but I mean she was so successful just on her own like if people do all the right things like proper editing and everything you can do some really cool things if self-publishing had been around in 2009 when I wrote Maddie Claire if I'd gotten just gotten rejected I would have self-published it at that time um like if I'd gotten rejected I wanted I wanted a publishing deal but um, if I, if there was nowhere else for that book to go, I would have just put it up myself. How did you, how did it sell? What did it sell as a horror or a romance or a historical fiction? Like how did it, how did they, how did they look um, at this? And go, we, yes. had a, we struggled with that. It, it sold because my agent who is still my agent, my agent read it out of her slush pile and fell in love with it. And she knew an editor who she thought she was like, I know an editor who would love this. And she sent it to various editors, but the editor that she thought would love it, did love it. And, and so it, that book got published because I loved it. My agent loved it and my editor loved it. And it wasn't like, it, it, nobody was like, oh, this is going to be like some math, like obviously they wanted it to be a massive hit, but it was just a labor of love. And it, also at that time, when it came out in 2012, it, um, Downton Abbey was yes. a big deal. And my publisher was kind of like going, like, okay, let's ride a little bit of this wave with the 1920s stuff. That makes but, sense. Um, it, that when I wrote the book 2009, I don't even think Downton Abbey was even out. So that wasn't like a, wasn't like a planned thing. Mm-hmm. So in the end, they, they, my publisher labeled it as, I believe they label it as suspense. I think it's suspense they used. It was the main word historical suspense or paranormal suspense but they always use that word suspense when they when they're doing their categorization of it to bookstores and whatnot I think that's what the word they use I've been finding your work in horror lately you know I mean not I I wasn't really sure where I was seeing I think it was one of those books that I had seen over time every time I went to the bookstore but now I think as you've you established yourself in this world they're just putting it all together so yeah. <laughs> they're sticking it all together in horror um but it's a delight to see because I think it speaks to the long history of women writing ghost stories yes you know, there's something yeah. I love about the female lens on a ghost story yeah well a ghost story can be very domestic right because it's usually a house um and the the ghost story has a rich history with male and female writers yes um but um yeah that that's a ghost story can be um lend itself really well to a female writer like I say because it can be kind of that it's a domestic thing it can be because it's a house is the the, you know the the safe space that you're in and if it's that that's haunted that that's a strange sort of violation and 
And um, yeah, there's a lot of different themes that can get pulled in by female writers. Um, for me, it was always, I mean, for me, especially with Maddie Claire, like, you know, I wanted, the ghost story was one thing, but the the romance in that book is very important. The romance yes. in that book is, is well, the whole book is, is a single point of view from a female character, but the romance is very female centered. It's, and that was, a, that was, again, that was my reaction to traditional horror, where even if there is romance or sex, A, it's either doomed because somebody's, one of them's going to, or both are going to die horribly, or it's, it's just very, it's just a male gaze kind of a yes. situation usually. So I wanted, and a lot of what I write in my books is kind of a reaction to a lot of the stuff that, that I've been fed on my life, you know, it's not, not, not growing up on strong female writers because you and I are both Gen X and we both come from the pre-Harry Potter world and we were stuck reading as teenagers, whatever the heck we could get off of our mom's bookshelves or right. whatever. And so I didn't grow up in J.K. Rowling's world or in the, in the world of The Hunger Games or in the world of any of these, even Twilight. I would have, if Twilight came out when I was 13, I would have died for that book. I would have loved it. So you can, anyone can dump on Twilight if they want, but I would have loved it. So, you know, I, I grew up reading male writers, mostly Stephen King, who I still adore, but like all kinds of male writers. And so when I, when it, when I took my turn to write my own stories, it was like, I'm just going to write, I'm going to write as the woman being the center of the whole thing, because mm -hmm. I never get to read that in a believable way. Yeah. And so that the romance in that is very, it's very female centered. And then the ghost story part for me has always been, I mean, for me, ghost stories, whoever is writing them are a lot of times they're simply about the fact that we don't know what happens after death and we will never know. And it is an eternal mystery. And ghost stories are kind of always exploring that mystery. Like, what is it? Like, where do we go? And do are you still there? Are your loved ones still there after they gone? Or are they suffering or are they just vanished? I mean, you know, like all these are big questions that we can't answer. And I think that ghost stories really revisit that um, in all kinds, from all kinds of directions, which is one of the things yeah. that I do in mind. I think, yes. And I do like the idea of exploring it from the male or female lens, because I've talked before about Poe and I'm paraphrasing, but that, that line he talked about where basically like the death of a young, beautiful woman is like the biggest kind of tragedy or, or like, but it's also one right. that we love or one that's like makes for good writing. And mm -hmm. that basically just objectifies not just in life, but in death. A, a woman. And I want to read to you a paragraph or two from there's this book coming out, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts. I'm actually going to have um, Leanna Renee Hyber and Andrea Janes on. And this is a nonfiction book. So it's really, it's really interesting because they explore the concept, not just historically, but also like as a narrative. And in, I use a different name for my nonfiction, uh, but when I publish my nonfiction, it's for magazines, it's, um, mm. it's always or almost always connected to a ghost story that I then historically go and, and research and see what the origin is behind that, because it's basically mm. weird history that I publish in Texas magazines. Um, and they kind of speak to a lot of what I'm finding, even in like stories from around here from around the Austin area or in Texas history but I also found that like 
when I'm exploring Simone St. James fiction or, or anybody <laughs> else writing a ghost right. story. They say that female ghosts have every bit of anger that makes living women sources of fear, which you definitely explored in your last book, um, yep. but none of the social restriction. Mm. In this way, ghost stories are often proto-feminist tales of women who only in death subvert the assumptions and traditions of women as dutiful wives and mothers, worshipful, girl, worshipful girlfriends, or obedient children by unleashing a lifetime's worth of rage and retribution. Spectrality can potentially bestow agency on a woman who was denied it in life, forcing her haunted victims to reckon with her whether they want to or not. While it's easy to dismiss and belittle a living woman who dares to be vocally critical or angry, it is much harder to silence a ghost. She has remarkable staying power. And I just That's like love that. Isn't yeah. it? Oh, I cannot wait to have these ladies on the show. I'm going to be doing it. A program with them for a local independent bookstore and you know our customer the customers in that store are already getting excited so, <laughs> because it, they nail it I think not just in local folklore but in what makes it appealing in women like not women writing ghost stories right and that's yeah, like no, that that that's dead on and I've 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 written almost that exact type of trope in a couple of my books I try, you know, I try and vary it a bit. The, one of the things when you get into like writing a number of ghost stories is like, okay, I got to write, if I write another one, it's like, okay, oh, it's a house and someone got murdered in a house. It's like, okay, I've done that. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> come up with something, but um, that, 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 that theme that you just wrote, uh, read there is uh, pretty prevalent um, in a lot of what I do. Yeah. I think that almost it speaks to even like what was big in like gothic romance in the 70s you right. go back to de Maurier, like they're they're trying to claim a narrative that they had always been denied even as female writers right. you know and gatekeeping gatekeeping and publishing and living their lives the way they they had to under various restrictions i feel like there's so much that comes out when a woman writes a ghost story and it just has such big appeal for me um mm -hmm. ghosts are my favorite horror trope witches mm -hmm. are a close second probably yeah. on par actually with writing ghosts for all the same reasons actually um because it is a lot about agency and taking control of your life and i just yes yeah and and i also visit the themes of like um anything that um like what what type of experience or whether it's grief or terror or pain or feeling is so big that it doesn't even get left behind in death and is still so powerful that it's still there even after death. And, and um, it, of course it completely ties into the theme of grief and not letting things go and not letting your past go and not letting the dead go and not letting, you know, people that you love go. And so those are really big, deep, feelings and big deep life experiences and deep themes and like you can I can just keep going back to them and you just never really you just never tap them out I mean they're just some yeah. of the biggest themes that that we have as humans they talk before those paragraphs they talk about something else that I thought was really interesting I love to watch I don't know if you ever watch her on YouTube Caitlin um Caitlin Moore I'm forgetting her name but um she has the ask a mortician channel and oh, she's got millions of followers and everything and she started the whole death positive movement that's been mm -hmm. going across the u.s for a while but she right. answers a lot of questions about historical things like what happened to the bodies on the titanic or what or answers a lot of basic questions about like 
here are trans rights in death or, you know, she's fascinating. Um, And the ladies in this book that talk about, you know, these nonfiction ghost stories talk about how we've been intrinsically linked with death in history. Mm -hmm. We were the, you know, it was a risk to have a baby. You know, the maternal mortality rate was so huge. Um, You lost your children quite frequently. You outlived your husband. So you lived as a widow. Widow widow was almost a rite of passage as a woman. You know, Um, they cared and tended to the bodies in in death. And so, you know, and the list goes on and on, but it was about like how we have this sort of intrinsic relationship with death that's beyond just the act of dying. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's that's very true. And women are the caregivers for the elderly, usually primarily, and and you know, and the elderly as they are going to pass and those kinds of things. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a there's definitely a through line there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In in it's funny because one of the articles that I had written and published last year was about death, the death positive movement and like death doulas are, are basically on the rise and a big movement going on. And like every, every single turn I'm finding, whether it's, uh, you know, green cemeteries or, or all these things, they do seem to be led by women. And I find mm-hmm. that fascinating because it, it taps into that, it's almost like a collective unconscious, like a need right. that we have to be, to be there in that time. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. That's fascinating. Um, so on the flip side okay. of your ghosts, your humans, and particularly in the last two books are as terrifying, if not more so than your ghosts. <laughs> and I yep. think that's really interesting to explore. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my most recent book, the book of cold cases, I mean, I just straight up wanted to explore the idea of a, a female serial killer and a female serial killer. Like, you know, like if you, I'm into a lot of true crime and if you listen to a lot of true crime, it's like the actual female serial killers that we know of are like, usually like, you know, like they worked as nurses or they worked as, and they, you know, they, you know, or they killed by poison or they killed various husbands. And I, and, and yet we have these male serial killers. And again, this is the general canon of true crime who are like these terrifying Hannibal Lecter type figures. And I was playing with the idea of how can a woman be terrifying, Yeah. right? Like how could a woman be terrifying and and that's not something that we usually think of and I even have my my heroine is going to visit this woman and she's like should I be scared of going to visit this woman alone because if this was a man I would never go I would never go alone to to the home of a man who was accused of being a murderer I would never go there by myself but she's a woman so I've just kind of assumed that this this is fine but am I wrong you know so I just wanted to explore that idea and it was so fun to explore. Um, And so I just, that just sort of, that's what drew me into like the various layers of the whole book and that interaction between those two characters is, is, you know, she's always like, they're always playing a cat and mouse game. And she's always wondering like, should I be afraid of this woman? And this is also a woman who's over 60 in this book in the present timeline, like, who is afraid of a woman over 60 like that just seems like not something that we even consider and yet she's like this woman is terrifying (laughs) in her own way so um I just really uh enjoyed uh playing with that again I'm always playing with with the tropes of the usual tropes and trying to flip them a little bit and and exploring what happens when you flip it because 
you know, it's like, oh, it's about a serial killer, but it's a woman. But that that isn't that isn't a simple flip where it's like, oh, it's just a gender flip. Like when you make a serial killer a woman, you change the entire story. You change how it's treated in the media, how it's prosecuted, yeah. how the police treat her, how the public treats her, who suspects her and why, what the motives might be. No one can figure out why she could have done this. Like with a man, it's like, well, man, that's what men do, but why would a woman do this? Mm-hmm. So I mean, like every single aspect of that story changes in a whole bunch of different ways there's a whole ripple effect and so um that's a lot of what I was exploring with that story I love how you brought up poison because man that's been our weapon of choice historically speaking and even in gothic tales and stuff I even bring that up in the book she's like because they're like oh that isn't usually how a woman murders and she's like are you telling me that women only use poison is this are we really going to talk about how women only use poison? like maybe do we know that are we sure (laughs) Well, it's interesting because like, if you think about like Crimson Peak and every sort of gothic tale, like you always know, like, don't drink the tea Mm -hmm. (laughs) and witches, like historically, like when we look at folklore or when we look at like even Snow White with the poison apple, you know, that's, it's our weapon of choice, historically speaking, isn't it? Yeah. And then, I mean, you talked about the the quote about, you know, a beautiful young woman dying or whatever. Yeah. So again, in that book, I flipped it. I mean, they're, yes. they're just men dying and they're just, they're just, they're just tossed off as, as they don't like, they don't, the victims, like they don't matter. And they're just, they're just, you know, like it, to her, to, to the person who is accused of murdering them, you know, they're like this, this woman is just murdering men. Like they don't matter. Like they're trash. And it's like, yeah, yeah that, that's a terrifying idea for some people. Right. So if it's true, if that's what she did. <sighs> that book scared me so much. I had to like get up and walk <laughs> around that yeah. one. I mean, all of your books, you know, are properly scary, but the last two, I swear, I live in a green belt. And this happened when I was reading the Hacienda too. And it's like the animals in the, you know, in the woods behind me know. And so like, when I'm reading peak terrifying moments is the only time the coyotes in the woods behind me go nuts. (laughs) And I just remember between that and sundown motel, I'm like, why do they know? (laughs) Because yeah, it, and I do think that's interesting when you were talking about the the kind of disposability of the victims and how they were sort of glossed over because gosh, isn't that like, when you look at slashers, especially isn't that historically how we're treated in fiction? Right. right. What so a nice it fun. It, it's kind of fun to write, to flip it and write, you know, and just be like, Oh, like, how do you like it? Well, there's some woman maybe is just killing men and tossing them off. It's like, wow. She needs to be stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to stop that. <clears throat> well, so speaking of all of this, let's get it into craft a little bit because I mean, we've talked about uh, about it a little through some of these previous questions, but what can you tell us about writing ghosts successfully? Because it's tricky. It's trickier it than people expect. Yeah, it's very tricky. Yeah. And like I said, the more the more you write, the more you have to come up with ways to make it fresh I mean you know you can't just you know ways to 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 change things up a bit um and I've always said like the biggest challenge when you're writing a ghost story the biggest challenge you have to come up with is why don't your characters just leave right (laughs) you have to come up with a reason every time um, that's actually an interesting like let's make a note card to remind us as writers, like, this is something you need to think about. Like, yeah. why don't they yeah. leave? Yeah. Why don't they leave? So, and, and, and sometimes like 
the book of cold cases i mean you know and the even sundown like my characters are choosing to be there and they know the dangers and they kind of have an obsession and they're like i can't i'm not leaving until like i i know the dangers and i'm not leaving there's no way i'm leaving so i mean i kind of i i do address it but i don't i don't always trap my characters you know i, I make them choose to be like i cannot stop until i find out what happened yeah. so that's kind of a fun way to sort of have an obsessive character but then I've done you know like the broken girls was set in the um boarding school so those girls couldn't leave they right. were trapped there and um and um even the haunting of Maddie Claire I mean that was her job she was poor and she had to she was assigned she was working for a temp agency and he'd hired her she had nowhere else to go and this was the way she was going to make her money so she's going to stick with it so um you have to come up with you know however you settle it um, you have to come up with the, those kinds of things. And, you know, just, I think that what makes for me a good ghost story and what doesn't, the book doesn't work as I'm writing it, the book doesn't work until I figure it out, is how the, how the paranormal events um, actually connect to the character development, the character arc, the character's emotions what the characters are doing and why um they're they can't just be two parallel things that are just sort of happening um they have to be connected in some way in that you know this person needs needs to find the answers there are answers they need to find or there's something in their past they can't let go of and this is the only way they can let go of something that's keeping them from having a good life and um, so it has to mirror and connect into what the characters are feeling and going through every time and as deeply as possible. And to me, that's how that's how the story for me doesn't really start to work on a deep level until I have connected those dots. It sounds to me like you're a plotter, not a pantser. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I would say so. I'm not an in-depth plotter. Okay. Um, I do come up with what my first story idea is always what I call the question. I mean, it's always a question to, to me. Like I, the book of cold cases, did she or didn't she kill those people? I didn't know when I first came up with the concept, I wanted to know the answer. Um, and I was like, what if you had this person and you were going to interview them? And it's like, did they or didn't they commit all these murders? They went to trial for it and they got acquitted. But was that right? Was that wrong? And so for me, that's a, it's the it's the story question. So I always start with the story question. And I don't when I first come up with that, I don't know the answer. And um, from the story question I'm building out in my mind, I'm building out who these people are, where it's set, uh, what time period it's set and what time period really works. Um, and just sort of building in like what, why do I care about these people? And why do I care about this question? And that bubbles away in my brain for a long time, those types of things. And I don't have the answer to the mystery at that point. I spend a lot of time oh, building. Okay. I spend a lot of time building something that I'm really, really interested to know. Um, and I don't actually know the answer, but it's a question that I'm just dying to know the answer to. That's something I build a lot. Of. That's the whole first part of in my, this is all in my mind at this point, like as it's an idea is bubbling and if I if an idea doesn't if I don't get interested enough in the question then that's an idea that I I'd scrap but so uh, there's a lot that goes into for me the question making the question for me really compelling something as a reader I'd want to know the answer to and again so, with Sundown Motel it was like her aunt disappeared well what happened to her 
where did where'd she go? Well, I don't, I want to like, why do I want to know the answer to this? Like, who are these people? And what, what's the setting? And what's the question? And like, I get deep, deep into that question. It's like, where'd she go? Well, now I, want, I gotta write the book. I gotta answer this. <laughs> well, so your more recent books are like bigger into the mystery than your earlier books. Like the earlier books have the mystery there. So in gothics, you you will often have like an intrinsic level of mystery, like because yeah. we want to know about the haunting. We want to know why. Yeah, is and his, his unsettled last wife business. died mysteriously. Did he murder his last wife? And is she? buried and <laughs> right right you made this last one so not I don't know if complex is the right word but maybe it is like there was no guessing before <laughs> right. you know it was just I just I read it thinking wow how much time does she spend mapping this part out yeah and so I mean I do once I come up with a really good story question that I've really built out that's when I kind of pitch the idea just as a verbal thing just to like my editor and I'll be like this is something and, sh and she'll either say yes or no like yeah I want to like I want that story like that story intrigues me or not um thankfully she usually says it does because at that point I've done a lot of work and then I go back and I figure out and I and I try and work out what the answer to the to the mystery might be but to me like I don't I, at the same time I don't write like I don't write what's called like twist books you know right. like, it, it, where like the second last page you're like oh my god everyone in the story was actually dead and uh, right know, right you know or like those kinds of things and those are great like those are fun to read and readers adore those but that's not specifically what I write like I'll, even in the book of cold cases like without spoilers but I mean there's a huge part of the mystery that's revealed at the 50% mark you're it's a huge part and it's it's almost mathematically the 50% mark page wise word count wise and I spend the second half unraveling this thing that you've you've just found out and so I mean it isn't like if I'd taken that 50% twist and just put it on like the second last page to me that would have been very unsatisfying because you have so many the reader would have so many questions like what what it was what like what you didn't explain any of this so I spent a lot of time explaining it and going back and there's to me there's still a lot of intriguing things to know about that plot point but um, it's kind of interesting because I occasionally get readers who are kind of, I think they're going in expecting something that's going to have a crazy twist on like the last chapter. And they're like, wow, there was like a huge revelation in the middle of the book. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like that was intentional. I structured that very, very deliberately um, because that's to me, that part of that twist, the whole point of the book isn't the twist. Right. The point of the book is is the characters and the story and how does this work and and why are these people doing what they're doing and how does everything shake out for everybody and what does all of this mean and like you know to, there's a lot of things that I find interesting about these characters and their story that I just want to tell and it isn't about like oh I'm trying to fool you all the way to the second last chapter and then I'm going to give you a big crazy twist that's not really what I'm after other authors do that and they do it great and readers adore it no, but that's, that's why I read you though, because yeah. you save me the anxiety, yeah. <laughs> you know, you almost expect a different, darker ending, but because you're Simone St. James, right. you're not going to leave me broken. Yeah. And <laughs> it's know? funny because I and see, I'm the, like, how is she I see do this? the reactions and they're like, oh, I kind of thought like maybe on the second last page, like character X would turn out to be secretly a murderer. And this maybe character Y would turn out to be secretly the murderer all along. And it really, you were being fooled. And like, none of that happened. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't do any, I don't do that. 
<laughs> you need to read a different author. <laughs> right. And I wonder if some of that goes back to your foundation in romance, because the happily ever after in romance is, is key. But for yeah. me, like one of the things that I love about Simone St. James is that you give me the ghost, which is my favorite yeah. horror trope, but yeah. even at a minimal level, you know, like in this last book, it, you had a very minimal romance, but there was enough of a safety net there for yeah. me to be able to keep going. Because if I have anxiety in a book and I'm not sure if it's going to have an ending that's going to break me or not, I'll read the end first. Yes. <laughs> so I. And I have to say like the books I write, like we just talked about, like, you know, like, death and the afterlife and all these things like the, the the themes of the books I write are really really dark it's really dark work sometimes and like for the reader to read one of my books is like a x number of hours but for I work on a book for like 18 months like between the beginning to the wow. handing it into the revising it two or three times with my editor to copy like I work on a book for 18 months that is a long time to be in a very very dark space and I write these books back to back to back to back to back I've you know I just finished writing my ninth one so you know like this is I've been doing this since like I said Hunting Maddie Claire was 2009 I've been doing this a long time and so my day job is to go into this very very dark space and um it's it's um I, I have just for my own self I have to add these other elements. There are parts of my books that I find really funny. Uh, I don't care if other people find them funny. I yeah. amuse myself. I always, I add that that's what the romance is to me. I want something positive in there. I, um, the ending is always going to be a certain way. I have a certain note to it, a certain feeling, emotional note to it, because I can't just do dark back to back to back to back to back to back as an entire day job is my career forever and ever and ever like my mental health will not handle it I would have quit by now so I just that's it's something that readers respond to I think when they find my stuff um, and they don't really know they wanted it until they start reading it and it's just something that I do for my own just as so I can keep doing it because I can't just do relentless dark myself yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why I read you and Hester Fox and stuff like as auto buys, because yeah. I know I'm going to get that dread, but I'm also going to get, I have the safety net, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and you know, was funny, I like at one point someone mentioned in this book, this last book that, you know, that she has a cat and someone else was like, does the cat die? And I was like, let me tell you, I'm going to spoil every book of mine right now. Right now, I will never write about an animal dying in my book. It will oh, never happen you. if there is a cat or a dog. That cat or the dog ends the book very happy. No problem. <laughs> I'm going to, no problem spoiling that. So like people are just like, oh my God, does the cat die? And everyone's like, no, 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 the cat doesn't die. And like the cat will never die in my book. I, I love it. That. I would lose my mind. I would quit. I would quit writing if I had to write that. <laughs> I appreciate that knowledge. It makes me even happier. <laughs> I will never kill the cat or the dog. No. Oh my gosh. I know, uh, I know specific people who will be very pleased with this information. Um, well, staying on the, on the idea of craft. Um, so when I talked about you on talking scared, I mentioned the scarred hero in Maddie Claire, yeah. and he was like, what's this, what is this thing with scarred heroes? Oh, and what is that about? about romance. Yeah, well, <laughs> such a romance newbie. <laughs> I know. It is an appeal because I think that's about accepting people with their flaws, regardless yeah. of whatever they are. And yeah. even when you're not writing a quote unquote scarred hero, I do see that in your books, mm -hmm. like consistently as a theme, but 
there's a hunger for it as readers because we're all flawed. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I find it interesting that you find a new way to write a version of a scarred hero, if you will, not even just hero, heroine, it could be basically flawed people, um, that are trying to find their own place, their own answers, their own everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly in that first book, I mean, the scarred hero, I mean, I told you, like, I, you know, I wanted to be Elizabeth Hoyt originally. So, I mean, that's, he was a straight out of Elizabeth Hoyt book. I mean, except that was the wrong era, but, um, you know, it's, I, that was definitely a romance trope of mine. And I love, I love adding romance into my books um, in every, you know, and it's more subtle in some books, like Maddie Claire is pretty explicit. Yeah. Um, I don't go. I was not sad about it. I know I wasn't either. I enjoyed writing it. And I don't need the explicit sex scene in every book. Like it depends on this. It's just really a story requirement, whether it's in or it's out. But, um, and that, that book actually, I I still stand by that book really neat. Those scenes were really important. And, um, but sometimes it's not something, you know, this last, the most recent book, the, the romance is there, but it, you know, we don't need to go into a lot of details, but I, I just love adding that in. Like, to me, that's just like, I, I don't know. I just, I can't imagine like, that's like saying like, oh, you have this, this beautiful scoop of ice cream. Would you like some chocolate sauce on it? And it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you got this great mystery. You're going to add a romance in. I mean, yeah, please. Like that's, that just makes it better. It just makes it more of a treat. Well, and going back to the idea of craft with that though, every time I've talked about writing sex on the page, I've talked about it as romance writers, we use it as a as a way to move the couple forward. Like there is not, I mean, there are people that just like make them bang, but like people, when, when you can tell when, when they do that, because people will actually just move past that in the pages. If there's nothing happening between the couple moving the story forward, Mm -hmm. then it feels pointless in the book and it's not interesting. Right. You know, so your use of it and Maddie Claire was used in the way that other like successful romance writers like Elizabeth Hoyt will use it which is to help move the story forward it moves the story forward and in that book it was two people who were showing just the ultimate vulnerability um, to each other and that that for that particular dynamic between those two characters in that situation and uh, you know he's a he's he's a come home from war he's a war veteran and and they're both two very closed off people and they've met this one person who is they're going whether they like it or not because they resist it whether they like it or not this is the person who sees them as they really are and so it is just a completely raw vulnerable moment for both of them um and so that's why that works it it had to go to that level of vulnerability between the two of them um and it's, it doesn't have to go into that. It depends on the story. It depends on what else is going on, those characters and where they are. But for that story, yeah, it depends on, yeah, it just, there's certain times when it, it just really works. It just kind of needs to be there. And if it isn't there, you're almost disconnecting your reader from your characters. You're giving them a little bit of a shield and, and you're not letting your reader all the way in. Mm. And um, so it's a, it's always a judgment call in, in every book of mine because, the book, you know, the, the sexual relationship isn't the primary plot, like it is in a romance. It Um, is different copies. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's either required or it isn't. Yeah. Do you, do you ever feel it will be required again? I hope so. (laughs) 
I'm just sitting I like here writing, I like writing those scenes. And again, like aside from the fact that it's a sex scene, like getting into that deep vulnerability with characters is really, really rewarding to do if you're if you've set it up correctly and you you're you know these people so well and you know where they're at. Um, and it's it's a great scene to write. It can be really, really fun to write, frankly. Um, I know a lot of writers like, oh, I just I don't like writing sex scenes. It's uncomfortable. I have no problem with it. Um, yeah, yeah. At that, when I get to the point of that scene, I, I almost always write my books in sequence. I don't write out a sequence. So by the time I get to that scene in the book, I'm with those characters at that plot point where they are in their development, in their arc, and in their arc together. And and um, it's like, yeah, these guys got to jump into bed. I mean, it's just got to happen. I mean, this is how it's going to happen. So I would definitely... Um, yeah, I would definitely come up with, I would, I definitely would write it again if the characters called for it. For sure. It's funny because I introduced Michael Seidlinger to a term called danger bang, and he, yeah. he had never heard that before. And what's interesting about your use of it is that as much as it's about, you know, ex- these characters like sharing their vulnerability, there's a level of vulnerability there that's combined with the dread of the ghost because right. the ghost occasionally appear, appears like on or near her bed, which scared the crap out of me. But I was just sort of waiting for the ghost to appear like yeah, while yeah. that was going on. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> bracing myself. I won't say whether or not she did. Um, but it was just like, it was, it was a connection between the characters, but it was like, there's an extra level of dread with this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cause like, yeah, that's true. They did do it like in, yeah, in the house where the ghost had actually, it wasn't the primary spot she was haunting, but she'd been there. So yep. yeah, she could have showed up. She had <laughs> been there. That's why I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, because it's like, at your, like, aside from being in the shower, there's like nothing more vulnerable you could be doing. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and like with the book of cold cases, sometimes it's just mechanics because in the yeah. book of cold cases, I just, in the mechanics of that story, I never had a point where those two characters were somewhere together overnight. And then I wasn't just going to make, like, they were like, they were like, talking on the phone and then they were like out for a drink and I'm like well I can't just make like were they gonna do this in public like I can't like I just physically can't get them into a bed (laughs) unless I create an entire whole separate thing that takes away from the main storyline so like it depends like they in in Haunting Magic Clara they were just in that house and um the same thing happened in my second book Inquiring the Love and Death where she's in the house and the police officer the police officer comes to the house and so they're in the house and there's a bed right there you can kind of make it work but I just didn't have those two people in a bed and it is right <laughs> oh. I, had, I could have added it in well, people are just going to have to read Maddie Claire to find out whether or not it happens because she appears a few times I'm just not going to say how when or where <laughs> I will say too I when I when I first started writing the haunting of Maddie Claire and this isn't a spoiler because it's like chapter one, but I thought that Sarah was Sarah. It was going to be a romance between Sarah and Alistair was my I idea. thought that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I got, and it was so interesting because I wrote that first chapter. And again, like I was an unpublished author. I did not have an agent. I did not have a deal. I was just like, I thought that I was just, a, you know, at that point I was just a failure so far. And I sat down and I wrote that chapter and I went, man, these two are not going to get together. And, but they have a, they have a, chemistry they have like a, a, a loving chemistry but it isn't a sexual chemistry and I I, swear, I put them on the page together and that's just how it panned out interesting said, oh my god I gotta come up with some there's gonna be another guy and he's gonna show up well he was delicious I didn't mind him I at know. all <laughs> um 
Well, another craft question for you is about your dual timelines. And it's interesting because I read Evelyn Hugo like a year or so after it was put, but I based, I read it right before I read Book of Cold Cases. So it was just really interesting to not to read two back-to-back dual yeah. timelines and interviews. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about a connection between the main character and whatever ghost story is happening, mm-hmm. um, which we didn't really see so much like with the the kind of first famous one with interview with a vampire, you know, it's an interview narrative, right. but the, that same like level of connection is there. I do feel like that helped both of those books, both Taylor Jenkins Reed, Jenkins Reed and you, it, it raised the stakes. So the two timelines did you mean? Yeah. The dual timelines and the connections, you know, and everything. And it raised the stakes. And I didn't know, again, I know that you've said that you were exploring the answers to these questions, but are these plotted out? Are these things plotted out for you first? Um, Well, whether or not it's a dual timeline, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, But it just, um, my first dual timeline book was Broken Girls. I did a, as you, as you mentioned, like I did a jump. So I did five, I did five books that were set in 1920s England. And all of those are first person and, and um, just a single timeline set from the heroine's point of view. That's just her story. And um, those are kind of my, my Mary Stewart books for better for worse and then I I I hit that point where I was like well I just I had just done what I wanted to do with that type of format um I love those books had a great time writing those books um and but I just kind of hit a wall where I'd done what I wanted to do when I finished Lost Among the Living which is a book I still adore and nobody read but that's okay I read it (laughs) I I read it and listened to the audiobook because it was a good narrator um so, but I kind of hit that wall and, and there was a big, at that time, my publisher, which at that time was Penguin and just merging with Random House. And there was a huge upheaval in publishing and um, my editor left and they were cutting authors like crazy. Like anyone who wasn't making kind of big money was sort of on the chopping block. And I, those books never did horribly, but I mean, they were mid-list books. Like they weren't, I was nowhere near a bestseller list for sure. Like they just kind of did okay. And it was a period of time where like, an author who was only doing okay was like, man, you're, you could be, you could be done. <laughs> it's not good enough. So, um, so I, so I, I had one book left in my contract and I had, it, I, everything had changed. It was a new editor. And it, it's like, I, I was like, I don't know. I, I might be done. So I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and write something completely. And I, I went, I actually did look at it a bit and I went like, what could, I want to keep certain elements that make it a Simone St. James book. Like I wasn't just going to be write a sci-fi or something completely. I wanted to change things up a bit. And this was just because I kind of thought maybe I wouldn't get a chance. Cause I thought maybe I was gonna, never going to get another contract, frankly. So I was like, well, if this is the last book I ever get to publish. I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and write something really wild. And I changed it to America and I changed the time period. And I had this idea about the first thing that came to me with the broken girls was the, in the image in my mind was, and this isn't really a spoiler, but it's like the, there's a, there's the, a, a, a haunted girls boarding school and there's a well and they're dismantling the well and there's a body in that well. And so I, that was the image that came into my mind and the image was of who's in the well. And my second question was who is standing there watching the well be dismantled and and 
and finding this body and asking this question. So I had two questions, I had two story questions when I came up with that concept. And, and I went to my editor and I was like, look, my next book, like what if I did like a haunted girls boarding school in 1950s Vermont? And her answer was, can you write that in like a week? Cause I wanna read that like tomorrow. <laughs> I just really want to read that. And I said, okay, I guess that's it. Okay, I'll go ahead with this idea. And so that was always a dual timeline because I just had two questions. I wanted to know the answer to the mystery, but I wanted to know about that person standing at the edge of the well and asking those questions with her own story, her own arc. Mm -hmm. And so that just had to be two timelines. And the thing with some of it is if you don't have a dual timeline, then if you only have a single timeline and it's the present day timeline, then 99% of the time your, your main character is either Googling things or reading things or sitting there reading a book. <laughs> it's not very, this is not very interesting. Yeah. So it's like, look, if you're going to talk about a haunted girls boarding school, you need to take the reader and dump them straight into the middle of that haunted girls boarding school and make them feel just as trapped as those girls did. Because reading about it, having a character reading about it from a, from a remove is only part of the story. And, you know, as a reader, like, just, just drop me into the middle of it and make me feel it. And that's just how the dual timeline comes about. So it always comes about from story, from what that story calls for, because I'll just say that the next novel I have releasing, which is, I don't have a release date yet, but it, it's a single timeline and it's in a past timeline. So that's just how that story, what that story needed. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, oh, what can I shoehorn into a dual timeline? Because I know that sometimes like those are kind of popular. The dual timelines have been popular. That wasn't, it wasn't like I came up with a dual timeline idea first and then shoehorn something into it. I had this image in my head and it had two questions and one was in the past and one was in the present. And I just had to write them both. Okay. And I wrote that book in sequence. I wrote, I wrote like it goes past, present, past, present, past, present. I think there, it breaks up a little bit in the third act, but it almost goes back and forth, back and forth each chapter. And I did, that's how I wrote it sequentially, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth. Okay. So you said something a minute ago or not a minute ago, a little while back, but it kind of goes back to what I was initially saying. You said uh, you wanted to keep all the things that made it a Simone St. James book. Now, yeah. listen, I found you with Maddie Claire. I read through all those historical fictions that you did like bam, 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 because they were delicious. I wanted every single one, like the next one I wanted even more than the one before that. <laughs> like, they were wonderful. I really, really loved those. And I was reluctant to try your contemporaries. And of course, once I did, I fell in love with them. And now I'm always like, when's the due date for the next one? So right. what are the things that you can tell people are the things that you're consciously thinking of as a Simone St. James book, because I do feel like you've created your own brand of Gothic. Yeah. And on a service level, you know, if it's a ghost, a ghost story, I wanted it to be still be a ghost story. And beyond that though, like on a, on a deeper level, like it's completely female centric. It's, you know, I'm just gonna, that's always what I'm going to write. And it's just, if you don't like it, you go read somebody else, but that's just <laughs> what I write. And so it's going to be like, it's going to be a female centric story and it, all of it is going to sort of revolve around that. And it's going to have ghosts in it. And I, that's kind of when I, I, when I went to sort of rejig things, I thought, well, if I keep that part, 
and I don't set it in the 1920s, it's still a Simone St. James book. I could, I can change the timeline and it's not really changing what I'm doing and what I want to do with story-wise. So um, those are kind of the two main things that I do. And, you know, the, 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 the tone of it being really, really creepy to the point of being really, really scary, but also not ending as like a horror ending. Those kinds of things are all things that I intentionally, like when I sort of rethought things, I thought, yeah, the, there's certain things I want to keep doing because I, I think they work and the readers who are following me really like them. And it's kind of a promise I've made to the reader. I have no desire to change those things up, but I wanted to change up some other things just, just to keep the creativity flowing. And I had other eras that I was interested in exploring and these themes that I have translate into other eras. I, I started out in that interwar era, one of the... Um, inspirations for The Haunting of Maddie Claire was that I read something somewhere and about how um, after World War I in England, they had a hard time uh, to, uh, farming the fields because all the men were dead. And I thought, oh my God, like, that is like, that is a horrifying thought, you know, and just that these empty fields because all the men were dead. And, and that just to me just sort of married in with a ghost story idea. I was like, why are these fields haunted or like, where are the, you know, what the people who are left behind are haunted, the people who are still alive are haunted, and the people who are gone are haunted, and the battlefield must be haunted, and like, you know, so it just sort of was one of those things that sparked that idea, and so that's why I really explore that interwar period, and all of the, most of the men I write about in those books are, came home from war, and they were just like, there's a lot of stuff about mental illness and PTSD in those, in that time, and, you know, and how that changes your perceptions of, you know, life and death. And these men have got different ideas of life and death. And the women who lost people have different ideas of life and death. So I got to really delve into that. But I had kind of explored that as much as I wanted to. And there are other areas that I could explore that with. And um, I just wanted to change some of that up. And so that's just what I did. I wanted to move over to an American setting and because there's great haunted places in America, I'll tell you. And, you know, I just wanted to change some of that up and, and, but I could keep a lot of the same elements and explore a lot of the same ideas. And so that was a very conscious thing that I did. Well, it works. And I appreciate the reliability of being able to pick up Simone St. James and have those things because that's, ex those are the things that I love, yeah. you know, in, in a book. So thank you. <laughs> so what are some of your favorite ghost stories that you've read that you want to recommend to readers? Um, I don't read a ton. I do read some, I don't read a ton of ghost stories. Um, Michelle Paver wrote a book called, I think it's called Dark Matter which is about an Arctic, uh, Arctic explorer trapped in the Arctic and with, in a cabin with something yeah. that is terrifying. One of my favorites. Um, and I read, you know, she doesn't write ghost stories specifically. I read a lot of Tana French and um, oh. I find her, I find her books deeply scary and they're not paranormal books although she sometimes she just slides in a little bit of paranormal something and she doesn't she doesn't bother explaining it she doesn't have to explain it she's like did you see that or didn't you not did you not see that I don't know but I find her books very moving and very frightening yeah. in, in a weird way I don't know I think it's I think it's the human aspect that she can really nail how frightening the human aspect is I don't know how she does it I think she, I think she is a brilliant writer she's one I read a lot um and yeah, I don't read a ton because I like to keep my own work yeah. fresh. Um, I do. I mean, I've been reading Stephen King my whole life. I usually read him. 
Um, he has a new one out. I haven't picked up yet, but I will. Everyone's going uh, nuts over that one. I'm supposed to be, yeah, it's supposed to be really good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't read a ton of, a ton of ghost stories specifically, I, especially new ones. Um, I tend to, I, sometimes I'll go back and read some classics. I mean, I've read Dracula probably 20, 25 times. Yeah, my yeah. But, um, you know, I, I don't read a lot of new ones because I'm kind of trying to keep my own thoughts on it pretty fresh. Do you ever use or refer to, or get inspired by, uh, like, you know, this nonfiction book, like local or his, like, you know, local legend or lore? I do love reading that stuff. And, and it's funny because, you know, when I meet readers, like readers love to tell me their own ghost stories. Yeah. And I love that. I'm like, great. Like everyone's like, oh, people will meet me and be like, you know, and I used to stay in this house and the chair would fall out the window or whatever. I'm like, yeah, tell me, like, tell me all the ghost stories. I love them. I love listening to reader ghost stories too. Um, people love to tell me their ghost stories and I love it. Um, but um, I don't, yeah, that that's, I, I do, I don't rely on that specifically for plot ideas, um, but um, my plots just sort of come from, they don't ever really come from one place anyway, like they come yeah. from all place. I think a lot for me, because I, you know, all of the ghost stories I have in progress or have written will come from a sense of place. So for me, it's about like, I, you know, came across this really isolated cemetery on the coast and it had a beautiful little chapel on it. That's not in use. Ooh, what's the story there? You know, that kind of thing. Like here in Austin, the Driscoll hotel is like this famously beautiful historical, like very fairy tale looking building from the 19th century and of course that means there's a million ghost stories there but it's always a kicker to me whenever you have like famous people attached to them so you'll have like annie lennox has a ghost story from the driscoll you know (laughs) (laughs) or whatever um you know and that happens kind of i think in bigger cities a little bit more where people tour um which i always think is wild and i'm like but you can do something with that like not you but like writers you know like for me it's always like a sense of place I don't know about you yeah for sure the the, setting is a huge huge part of a ghost story and sundown for me I was a little bit of me challenging myself because a haunted hotel has been done obviously the shining is is the ultimate pinnacle of that but like I thought like what if you did a motel like a motel doesn't even really have interior spaces like it doesn't even have like corners or attics or basements or you know, like it's just a row of rooms and a, and it was kind of a chat, like no one, had, I had never read about a haunted roadside motel before. Maybe some, I'm sure somebody's done it at some point, but I had never read it. And I was like, well, what, how would you make it scary? How would you make a motel scary? And so, and then once I dug into it, I'm like, well, yeah, there's ways you can make a motel oh, yeah. scary. <laughs> I managed to do it, but like it started out as a bit of a challenge. Cause it was like, how would you make a structure that doesn't even really have any interior space yeah scary like you know like that's not a traditional like I say I'm always trying to keep it fresh and and um there was a book I I wrote um one of my 1920s books called The Other Side of Midnight yeah and that book there is no haunted space in that book like the ghost is following following people around the ghosts are all over the streets of London and they're everywhere like I didn't I, I intentionally didn't make a to any type of building or structure that is haunted I made like the hauntings just sort of all over yeah. streets of 1920s London and she's a, she's a psychic so she can see them and she's the only one who can see them so that that changed up the structure a bit 
So it's always fun to try and kind of come up with something that makes it a little bit fresh. For anybody listening, The Other Side of Midnight is one of the Simone St. James books that is narrated, if you are interested in audiobooks, by uh, Mary Jane Wells, who is God's gift to audiobooks. <laughs> She's amazing. You were so lucky to have mm-hmm. her do two of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you get Justine Eyre, for, or you have Justine Eyre for another one or two of them, too. I'll, I'll double Yeah, I think she lost, among, she lost Among the Living, I think. And I like her a lot, too. Yeah. Um, so she's done some Mimi Matthews ones as well. But, um, you know, if you guys want to catch up on some, some back stories from Simone St. James, those are some amazing narrators that, you know, if you want to listen while you do chores. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she did. Yeah. And I, I get, I still get, like just positive feedback from my Mary Jane Wells audiobooks. It's like, wow, these are Yeah, she's so good. I really wish she did Elizabeth Hoyt. I love reading Elizabeth Hoyt, keep going back to her, but I was like, what I wouldn't give for her to do, you know, that's a lot of Lisa Kleypas. And oh, okay. I'm like, oh, that would have been great. You know, she's so good at historical fiction. Um, so yeah, you got, you, you got a real treat there. So yeah. Well, I know that you're, it's still early days, but is there anything that you can tell us before I let you go about your next project? Well, um, I have a novella releasing October 4. It's called Ghost 19. Um, I did not know about this. <laughs> I thought you would have known about this. Um, <laughs> yes, October 4 is a novella. Um, it's coming out in audio on October 4, just for you. I just, no, I'm just kidding, but it is just for, for me. Let's roll with that. <laughs> um, and it releases an audiobook October 4. It releases in ebook on January 4. I believe that's the date. Okay. So is this part of a thing like you and uh, Rachel Harrison and Alma Katsu have these like audible first and then ebook later, like novellas? Yeah, that, like that's not of- intentional. I mean, I would love to. Oh, I didn't know if it was a series. Two, but, um, but it was just that um, Ghost 19 is a book, is a uh, novella that I wrote. I actually wrote it about three quarters of it. I wrote it about, oh God, four years ago, five years ago, maybe. And I abandoned it because I had all these deadlines and other stuff to work on and I abandoned it, but I always knew, I always had the end of the story in my brain and I always knew how it ended and I just never had the time to write it. And then during the pandemic, during the lockdown, I had turned in my, my first version of Book of Cold Cases to my editor. I didn't have anything else to work on for a little while until she got it back to me. And I was like, well, and it was a pandemic. I know where to go. I was locked down. It was like 2020. And I was like, okay, well, I, I found this on my hard drive. And I thought, oh, man, I don't even know if this stands up. And I read through it. And I was like, no, this is really, really good. And I revised it and I finished it. And so I spent some time just revising it and sharpening it up. And I wrote the last part of it. And um, I sent it off and I was like, I don't know what we do with novellas, but like, this is just sitting on my hard drive. Is, is this, is this anything? And my publisher was like, yeah, we can do like audio first and ebook second for that. And so that's the, we ended up, we're going to put it out and it's coming, it's coming out October 4 in audio. It's a novella. It's about a third of the length of my normal books. It's, a, it's like a three hour audio book. There is a big book. demand for novellas now. It's a Yeah. Thing. I mean, I. I'm a huge audiobook listener. And for me, like a three hour audiobook is like, that's perfect. That's like just it an is. afternoon, like an afternoon of like, or it's a road trip or it's an afternoon of like cleaning out closets or doing some type of chore or yard yes. chores or something. And like, you just do a three hour audiobook. I mean, to, I, I love it. 
So um, yeah, so that's coming out October 4. That's the next thing I have coming. And then I have a full length novel. I don't have a release date for that. Probably it's going to be at least a year um, that I just finished writing and turned in to my editor. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's, like I say, it's a single timeline and it's about, it's, it's about, um, a couple that is on their honeymoon. Ugh. They've gotten married and they're on their honeymoon and, uh, they, um, they take a wrong turn and they go down a wrong road and they pick up the wrong hitchhiker and then they start to walk the rails. And so it's, it's, that's why it's a single timeline. It's their, it's their honeymoon that goes wild. And yes, there's, it's a ghost story. And, um, <sighs> I had a blast writing it and yeah it's it's very romantic because they are they are married they're freshly married so there's a I got to do a lot of fun with just the two of them because they're in love but you know that they're literally got married the day before so they don't know everything about each other yet so there's a lot of the exploration and they're still falling in love even even as it's happening and but they already are in love and so I got to do a lot of fun relationship stuff as the fireworks are happening around all the wildness of that, that, that they get sucked into in this adventure. So, well, if you can tell whoever needs to know that I'm already waiting, <laughs> I won't stop talking about it. And on the <laughs> podcast, you, you go on. So, <laughs> that sounds like the perfect me book. So, <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for your time. What a treat this was. My listeners will all know how very excited I was about this because <laughs> I always wax on about Simone St. James. And so I think you've given us a lot to chew on for craft as well as just insight into your story. So thank you so much for all of well, that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And, you know, anytime you want to have me back, just drop me an email. <laughs> oh, okay. Noted. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on She Wore Black. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter if you follow the links on our website at sheworeblackpodcast.com. We have some great episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by shopping at our online bookstore at bookshop.org slash shop slash sheworeblack. Every purchase you make through our storefront, be it the books on my lists or any books you find in a search from our front page, will support the cost that goes into show production as well as supporting independent bookstores nationwide. Thanks again for joining us today and happy reading. Mm-hmm.